Welcome to Stupid Sequence, the show where we make rank list of things that don't matter because arguing with your friends is fun. I'm your host, Josh. And I'm your host, Scott. We are at episode 17 this week, and we'll start with a quick summary of what the show is. The goal of each episode is to create a ranked list of something, usually media-related. Scott and I will pick a topic before the show and each come prepared with a list of 10. In the first segment, we'll talk about the first five items from each of our lists in detail, why we feel they fit the list, why they're meaningful to us, or maybe some interesting facts about them. From there, we'll use the second segment to briefly mention the remaining items on our separate list before going head-to-head and arguing over which items belong in the official top ten. This week, our topic is, promised a couple episodes ago, we're finally getting to it, uh, most culturally significant media of the 80s. This is definitely... A very subjective episode, especially yeah, we're, because we're not doing our own personal opinions. We're trying to form it around the significance of the entity or the media itself during that time period. Yeah, so we're um, we're kind of coming in a couple factors here. Obviously, you know, we're we're this is simultaneously more and less subjective than our normal lists. Um, that we do because it's not just personal opinion on the quality of a thing it's a it's our personal opinion still but on the relevance of this thing within the 80s and beyond more significantly within the 80s but if it does have a lasting legacy that's an element right yeah i definitely included that in almost all of my entries and i think it's going to be obvious that several of them are still relevant today I think the other critical thing that we decided on is it has to have especially significant cultural relevance during the 80s themselves and not just after. So, like, The Simpsons doesn't really count. Like, yeah, it showed up on Tracy Ullman's show before it actually officially debuted in 89. But it's really once those first couple seasons of The Simpsons take off that the show becomes wildly popular. And the bulk of that is in the 1990 and beyond. So Simpsons, for example, would not be eligible. It's technically eligible. It's just not a good entry. Yeah, you're right. It's not a good. It's not a good example for what we're looking for. Right. But with those boundaries in mind, I, I think we're good to go. You want to get started? Let's get started, Scott. With your so okay. Hold on. Before we get going here, uh, we did have our impartial third party look at the lists as usual this week, and we found that we do have three duplicates within our top five. So to make sure that we're actually talking, uh, this first segment is filled out all the way. We're going to actually do our top sevens, which I guess not a huge surprise that there's so much overlap because if it's culturally significant, more than one person should think so. And since we independently made these lists, it would make sense that there would be a number of duplicates. I have a feeling I know what at least some of the duplicates are, but we'll get there. So, yep. Scott, agreed. let's get to your number seven. Number seven on my list is an album Ooh. by Madonna. Ooh. This is Like a Virgin. I would agree. Culturally now, relevant. Yeah. Maybe not to my taste, but. No, I, I mean, <laughs> I've heard the song, sure. And, and I'm familiar with a few of the songs on the album, but. The overall reception of this album, since it was released in November of 1984, 
it skyrocketed her career. And I think she's seen as one of the initial major pop icons as a result of this album in particular. It features two of the biggest songs, Like a Virgin and Material Girl, which have been used in countless movies. And then it had a few other singles that were released from it, including Angel, Into the Groove, Dress You Up. These are ones I'm less familiar with, but at the time, the reception was quite favorable. Notably, Like a Prayer, not on this album. Mm, No. Like a Prayer. It's another Madonna Mm. song. No. Very weird music video. So, a couple of things about this. Uh, The initial reception of this, I mean, it was was very well-received. And I think critics and people alike agree that this was... Uh, one of the best albums of that year. Uh, the the songs were considered to be smart, funny, kind of sexy, and, and I think it was helped with the advent of the music video, which also premiered in the eighties. Sure. And a, a lot of hey, spoiler yeah. alert: we're going to be talking a lot about music videos this episode. Yes, we are. So her like a virgin. I mean, that was that was what made her performance that much more enticing and and really brought more people into, okay, what's going on in this pop music industry? And so her her career skyrocketed as a result of this. I it was I don't believe this is her first album, though. This was just the most significant one. Um, And it, it should also be noted that. Without her, it's highly unlikely that pop music would look and sound the way it does today. Um, she, she just kind of changed the game for women in particular forever. Arguably the biggest female pop star of the 80s. Yes. I, well, Cindy Lauper maybe is in that conversation. I, who else are you thinking? Yeah, sure. Um, what? I'm thinking, see, my, my brain wants to go to bands first, and that's not really what we're talking about here. No. Um. Are you thinking Heart? Well, uh, Heart, Heart's kind of like 70s and 80s, right? Right. Um, okay, well, anyway, but, so many artists have actually been inspired by and compared to Madonna. She's kind of a- At Benatar. Yeah, okay, fair enough. She's also kind of a permanent fixture on every list of world's most powerful or admired or influential women. That also naming Madonna to other performers became in uh, kind of an honorific nickname adopted by the international media. So generally, artists are heavily who are en- heavily influenced by her um, became known as like the Mexican Madonna, and that was Selena or Yuri or Gloria Trevi or the Latin Madonna, Gloria Estefan, J-Lo, you know, uh, Shakira or the Black Madonna, Rihanna, Beyonce. I mean, it it just became such an iconic household name that she became the point of comparison for almost all future acts, for better or worse. Uh, Madonna is often called the most admired or influential female performer of all time by authors, critics, the public, and academies alike. It's it's a an overwhelming top three in every conversation, um, more than any other female singer in history. Which is maybe I don't agree with that completely, but I think she's definitely in the conversation of top three. 
And, uh, you know, Madonna is also cited as the artist that paved the way for virtually every female musician. And, and I think that's true mostly in the pop star kind of way, not necessarily sure. all music, because I think Aretha Franklin uh, and, you know, a few of those artists could really be seen paving the way for female vocalists in general. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and then, last note here, today's mo- more flamboyant female pop stars kind of enjoy the freedom to make the music and perform the way that they do, but they didn't create the freedom. Madonna did. You know, she was the original mover, and she kind of, she was shaking, right, uh, on music videos, um, literally and figuratively. And... Uh, it was really the early eighties and, and her, her empowerment of the female form that really led her to, to, to gain that additional confidence and popularity on the scene. And she forever changed pop music. So, and every other female pop singer, pretty much that followed her. Uh, so she raised the standards, she redefined the parameters. And, and I think for that, she deserves to be on, the top list here and like a virgin specifically being the media not just madonna the person but like a virgin being that jumping point for everything else that followed for her yeah i'm i'm less familiar with like i know the i know the madonna singles for sure you know but i'm less familiar with like what comes up album by album is this her first album no i don't believe so no and you know what? Looks like it's her second album. Yeah, I'm, I can't remember the name of the first one, but this one had first one is much bigger Madonna. reception. Oh, it was a self-titled. Okay. Uh, also, does not have like a prayer on it. Hmm. Later song. In fact, I don't think I recognize any of the songs on this album. Lucky Star, Borderline, Burning Up. Yeah, I don't, I don't know these. Nope, not sure. I I think it it's no surprise that this song charted and uh, kind of all over the world sold a ton of albums. I, I think over 21 million copies worldwide. That's why it's my number seven. Josh, what's your number seven? My number seven is not an album. We're gonna hear we're gonna hear some music. I I, I maybe skewed a little hard in music in my uh, my list overall here, but. Number seven is a video game. Perhaps you've heard of them. Mm. Video games? This is 1980s arcade classic Pac-Man. Mm. Great addition. I, it did not make my top ten, but it is in my honorable mention. Created by Toru Iwatani, who I believe you can see in the movie Pixels. They got him to show up for that, unfortunately. Um, Didn't see the movie. Was told it was terrible. I also also did not. Um, anyway, uh, Pac-Man, ludicrously, insanely popular. Just incomprehensibly popular in some ways. I've heard of it. it came out in 1980. They started shipping arcade cabinets out to, uh, out to arcades and everything. Um, it's estimated to have made a billion dollars in one year. That's not adjusted for inflation. That's a lot of money. Uh, it made more money than Star Wars did the year it came out. Uh, Which Star Wars? Uh, Empire Strikes Back. 
because uh, those came out the same year. Hmm. Pac-Man made more money. Wow. Um, it is estimated to have sold 400,000 arcade cabinets in less than three years. And during that time, made over $6 billion. A lot of money. Pac-Man did very well uh, to the point where there's uh, the entire concept uh, like news stories and things were happening about Pac-Man fever, this uh, phenomenon that is sweeping the nation and a wonderful song. So catchy. Yes. Uh, notably Buckner and Garcia wrote a song. They had did a whole album actually of uh, like arcade video machine, game related. Yeah. Video game related songs. Uh, do the Donkey Kong is also on oh there, but Pac-Man gosh, yeah. Fever is definitely the standout song there. Pac-Man Fever, Pac-Man Fever, driving me, me crazy. Okay, yeah, well, let's yeah. not get into that. Um, We're gonna scare song. people away. Uh, so other reasons Pac-Man is influential beyond just hey, it made a lot of money, um, and so it it kind of forced arcade machines into the public perception and acceptance in a way that hadn't happened yet. Like arcade machines are happening throughout, like um, especially the back half of the seventies for sure. But Pac-Man comes out and hits in a way that nothing else has even come close to hitting before. And suddenly everyone is going, I need to play this Pac-Man thing. It's very good Mm -hmm. within the world of video games itself. It kind of established the new genre of, of like the maze style game. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, It's the credited as the first video game to ever have power ups. The little power pellets that you pick up hmm. okay to eat the ghosts yeah. if you're not familiar with how pac-man works somehow uh and you know uh, spawned a whole franchise of pac-man related products uh probably most notably some years later uh ms pac-man was released um and is just flat out a better version of pac-man um it's uh just straight one-to-one it is a better game and then a whole lot of other Pac-Man spin-off type things that are generally not as good. <laughs> um, but uh if you ever played Pac-Land, it's maybe maybe not a stellar game. Uh but hey, Pac-Man itself though just uh, undeniably uh, just a force to be reckoned with in the in the early 80s especially. Yeah. And uh and continues to be a relevant thing today. So that's my number seven. Yeah, no, it's a great addition. And I considered it. I was trying not to be biased because as I was making this list, you could hear my youngest kids in the other room saying, I want Pac-Man. And I was like, oh, God, (laughs) because there's these terrible TV shows where and, you know, you try to limit the kind of garbage that your kids watch. They can only watch so much of that before you're like, "Okay, let's watch something educational or, you know, turn off the TV for a little while. But in this case, it's one of those shows where it's kind of like a guilty pleasure for them. And it it just features a Pac-Man type character consuming various things and gaining upgrades or new abilities or skins. And as a result, it just continues to consume. Their particular favorite at the moment is a Pac-Man planets thing. And as a result, they actually okay. know the names of all the planets. So I'm, I'm actually oh. not terribly upset with that one, but they like watching Jupiter be, being the largest of the, the planets, consuming all of the others. Uh, have you see, ever seen, maybe you should have them watch the 1982 Pac-Man cartoon. I don't know if that's good or not. 
That sounds like a trap. I have not watched it. Most of those video game cartoons from the 80s were perhaps not great. <laughs> hey, if it's streaming somewhere, there, there's at least a chance that it'll happen. But Let's come back to our good friend, the version of Mega Man from Captain N. No, it's me, I'm back. No, we're not going to do that. Sound like yeah, a okay. smoker for 40 uh, years. Uh, <laughs> the last thing I'll say about Pac-Man, you mentioned Pac-Man. You didn't even mention Billy Mitchell and his perfect game that he did of Pac-Man, where he literally competed. Oh, that's because Billy Mitchell is a cheater. Yeah, he's he's a cheater. He didn't cheat on Pac-Man when he won that. He didn't cheat on Pac-Man, it, notably. He did not cheat on Pac-Man. But he, he is absolutely on Donkey, on Donkey Kong. Yes, absolutely. For those of you who have not seen the documentary, Kings of Kong, Fistful of Quarters, highly and recommend. Oh my gosh, wonderful. It's, I've heard it's very good. It is trailing a few different video games, and we're kind of tangenting here, but the... The primary focus is a battle between the two of these. And Steve people, Weeby, right? Yep, Steve Weeby is one, and Billy Mitchell is the other, and they kind of battle back the and forth. The hot sauce king himself. No, I, he's got a terrible mullet, and he's a cheater, <laughs> and just kind of an a-hole, and I really don't like him. So that being said, you're cheering for Steve. I won't spoil it. Great documentary. Check it out. It has an accompanying documentary called Chasing Ghosts, beyond the arcade and it features a lot of the same people between the two documentaries um but that that one focuses more on various video games that were relevant at the time whether that's joust or frogger or you know centipede whatever and galaga so yep some really interesting 80s uh era arcade documentary and yeah check it out i really like centipede centipede's better than pac-man but certainly not as popular as Pac-Man. All right. Well, why don't we hop over to your number six, Scott? Sure. My number six is one you've definitely heard of, and it may or may not be on your list, and that would be Calvin and Hobbes. And shit. You forgot I didn't it? think about Calvin and Hobbes. Oh, man. man. Uh, that's unfortunate because Calvin and Hobbes is the best comic that's ever been made. So No argument. Calvin and Hobbes, uh, a daily American comic strip, for those of you who are not familiar, created by cartoonist Bill Watterson. It was syndicated from November 18th, 1985 to December 31st, 1995, and is commonly cited as the last great newspaper comic. So Calvin and Hobbes has enjoyed broad and enduring popularity, influence, and academic and philosophical interest. And I think the philosophical interest, for those of you who have ever read any of these comics, you know it's because it's often Calvin pondering the world and, and his place in it and the great beyond or just standing and thinking. And it get- Calvin and Hobbes themselves, named after philosophers. There you go. So the first Calvin and Hobbes strip was published, uh, like I said, in November of 1985 uh, in about 35 newspapers, and the strip quickly became popular. And within a year of syndication, the strip was published in roughly 250 newspapers and proved to have international appeal with translation and wide circulation outside the U.S. Although Calvin and Hobbes underwent continual artistic development and creative innovation over the period of syndication, the earliest strips demonstrated a remarkable consistency with the latest, and Watterson introduced all of the major characters within the first three weeks and made no changes to the central cast over the strip's 10-year history. So by April of 87, Bill Watterson was featured in an article in the Los Angeles Times. Calvin and Hobbes earned Watterson the Rubin Award from the National Cartoonist Society in the Outstanding Cartoonist of the Year category. 
first in 1986 and then again in 1988, and then he was nominated another time in 92. Slightly outside the scope, but still relevant. The Society awarded him the Humor Comic Strip Award for 88, and Calvin and Hobbes has also won several more awards since then. So during the 10 years it ran, Calvin and Hobbes was simply the best comic strip in the newspapers, and even after, I think, arguably still the best comic strip of all time. And Watterson is credited with not only creating this entity which has become so well-loved, especially from people who kind of grew up on Calvin and Hobbes, but credited with reviving the fine drawing, visual imagination, and character-driven humor that made comics popular since they first began appearing in newspapers more than a century prior to that. And for what it's worth, the readers spanned every age. Kids loved it. Teenagers loved it. Teenagers don't love many things. Teenagers love Calvin and Hobbes, and adults loved it. And I think that's... I loved it when I was a kid. I love it now. I, yeah, I made sure all of my kids read it, and will continue to read it. So, I mean, we have the full collection, so it won't be a difficult ask. But, yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised you managed to forget this from your list, because it, it, it became so incredibly popular. The only reason that it isn't higher on my list is Bill Watterson's refusal to let it go beyond the comic entity or just like the book collection, which I don't fault him for. And I'm not upset by this at, by any means. Right. But at the same time, it, it hasn't created movies. There's no TV shows. There's no, no real merchandising. And that's all because he said it needed to be appreciated in the form that it was created. I don't want people taking it into other aspects, you know, despite those uh, stickers that showed up on the back of trucks for a while, you know, pe- Calvin, peeing Calvin on, pissing on uh, various logos. Yeah. So aside from that, I, you know, there's, it really is meant to be consumed in its original form. And as a result that I, he gives, I get a 10 out of 10 for respect for that. And I, I think Calvin and Hobbes is a, Definitely worthwhile addition to this list, and I'm actually a little bit disappointed that you don't have it on yours. Okay, I need a Cal- uh, bumper sticker of Calvin peeing on Calvin peeing. Oh, it's a little bit Just meta concept. Yeah, yeah, you could probably make that first first time. Uh, Calvin Hobbes has come back up since our very first episode. Well, tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> no, we'll get to that. No, we won't, because you're going to be like, "Damn, I should have added it." All right, you can forget about my stuff. Uh-huh. We'll see. Okay, well, what's your number six? My number six is we're going over to a movie, a film, a very popular film. Yeah, hey, I've seen maybe films. You've, maybe you've heard of him. He's the Batman. Bat, not sorry, not the Batman. That's the Robert Pattinson one. We're talking about Batman, directed by Tim Burton. In no, I'm not familiar. Who's uh... 1989? Nope, doesn't sound. Not ringing any bells. Bam. Is that like Spider-Man? Uh, what if he had a sore throat and didn't have superpowers, but his superpower was being rich? Oh. Okay, no, I got it. Go ahead. All right, so uh, massively, massively popular movie. Um, easily the biggest movie of that year in terms of box office. Um, it really reinvent like I'm not here to talk about what happens in the movie. That's not that's not as much of what we're doing here in this episode, right? Right. Um, it is the movie that kind of reinvented what superhero movies could be. 
Um, you had like the Superman movies before this, or like a little bit of other stuff here and there, uh, that, you know, were popular enough, but weren't ever really taken seriously. You know, um, they're kind of like, oh, here's the goofy little superhero thing that's happening over here. Uh, and you think that Batman took this one seriously? Batman was a absolute multimedia phenomenon. Uh, it, the, the level of, uh, hype, the, the hype engine that was generated, the marketing engine that was, de- uh, developed around this movie is, was one of a kind at the time and has been, uh, tried to have been repeated many, many times since then. So I think maybe more than anything else, obviously this, this is a big shift for superhero movies in general, but maybe more than anything else, this is influential in the way that like blockbuster movies are marketed, right? Um, blockbuster movies as a concept is kind of like a decade older than this. Cause you have like, um, jaws and star Wars in the late seventies that are kind of like create the summer blockbuster, mm-hmm. especially jaws. Um, but Batman is a fundamental shift in how blockbusters are sold to American audiences. Um, you had like all of the, um, just different uh, stuff like, uh, the merchandising that was everywhere for this thing, even ahead of the release of the movie, right? Uh, they got Prince to do the soundtrack stuff and all kinds of different themed songs and stuff like that. And Prince wildly popular at the time. Um, and just, they, they, they threw like every single concept of what is a thing that we could make or we could produce to get people interested in this movie. They did all of it. Um, I don't think you really see that as much in like the last 10 years or so, but certainly through like the nineties the and two thousands, this was what was they were doing for like all the big blockbuster movies. And that starts here. Hmm. I guess I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, so it, it, it it's what, just a fundamental shift in in how what did they do that was unique? What do you mean? Like what what was unique about the way that Batman portrayed it besides, you know, including Prince, like what specifically did they do that I'm not talking about within the movie itself. I'm talking about external to the movie. No, I get that. The whole marketing blitz around. Okay, so it's just the marketing and and the way that it was approached as a summer blockbuster. Yeah, basically. That's that's the crux of my argument here. Okay. Interesting. Within the movie itself, you know, it is kind of, like I said, it's kind of reinventing how superhero movies are handled. Um you know, this later went on to you know, the first Batman movie I think is the one that's looked upon most kindly of those uh original four set of Batman movies. Certainly more than the Joel Schumacher ones. Right. <laughs> but uh, this is this is a movie that was just, it caught on in a way that nothing else in the superhero space had up to that point. And part of that was just because, because of that marketing blitz, because it wasn't being served up as, this is the biggest thing you have experienced in your life to this point. It's kind of that hyperbolic hype, hype engine thing that, that, marketing latched onto for a really long time you still see in some degrees now but right um, the most important movie of a decade yeah but well i'm that's bad i'm not agreeing to that but i could see why you would say that i don't think it's the most important movie of the 80s you know there's maybe another example of that but i think it is one of the most important movies of the 80s 
Well, maybe we should move to number five on my list, which is another important movie of the 80s. Let's do that. <clears throat> so my number five is Back to the Future. Okay. And that was... On, on my honorable mentions. That was released in July 3rd of 1985, and it was, of course, directed by Robert Zemeckis. Now, in retrospect, it's very easy to see why the film has connected with so many people. It weaved together tons of genres, sci-fi, comedy, nostalgia, even romance to some degree. And, and Zemeckis and, and Gale were, uh, drew multiple audiences into the tale of Marty McFly, who traveled back to the year 1955, where, of course, he met his parents as teenagers and accidentally prevented them from meeting. So as Marty's friend, played by Christopher Lloyd, Doc Brown, Worked to get Marty home, Marty had to get his parents to fall in love so that he had a future to return to. Now, back in 85, nobody really knew what effect the film would have on future generations. In fact, test audiences didn't even know the film was a comedy, much less a future classic. But families, collectors, and even political figures all found themselves part of a massive pop culture event that stretched from the White House, all the way to Britain's royal family. Like a couple of key things about that. So, Back to the Future, critical and commercial success, earned $381 million to become the highest-grossing film of 1985 worldwide. Critics praised the story, humorous elements, and the cast, particularly Fox, Lloyd, uh, Leah Thompson, and Glover, uh, Crispin Glover, and it received multiple award nominations and won an Academy Award, three Saturn Awards, and a Hugo Award. And its theme song, The Power of Love, by Hugh Lewis in the News, was also a huge success. So the movie itself not only was wildly popular at the time, kind of helped redefine the genre of what it meant to time travel. Not completely. It didn't, it didn't define it because, of course, Time Machine was a predecessor to this. There were a couple of other sci-fi TV shows and movies that kind of alluded to it. And of course, Doctor Who. But this one made it kind of cool in a, a completely different way. And it was, in a lot of ways, centered around the DeLorean. And the movie started a DeLorean collecting craze. So in uh, Back to the Future documentary, they call it Back in Time, it was released in 2015. Uh, many of the original viewers of the film admit that when they first saw the movie, they assumed the cool sports car that Doc Brown built his time machine out of was invented specifically for the movie. So when they discovered that the car was a real-life DeLorean that was now in short supply, moviegoers immediately started battling to get the car for themselves. So not only did it create kind of a, a craze of DeLoreans and collections, it also inspired many fans to begin building their own time machines out of DeLoreans. Um, so on October 26, 1985, same date as in the movie, people actually gathered at the Twin Pines Mall to see if Marty McFly would show up. There was a whole gathering, kind of a party broke out. It was a kind of a big deal. And in the documentary, of course, Michael J. Fox kind of recalled that during the 85 world premiere, he was seated next to Princess Diana, who was attending the premiere with her then-husband, Prince Charles, uh, one of the rules that they gave them was, don't talk to royalty, and don't turn your back on royalty, so you really can't leave. And right before the movie started, he realized he had to go to the bathroom, 
and he couldn't turn to leave because his back would turn to them, and he couldn't speak to them to let them know he had to excuse himself. So instead of awkwardly backing out of the aisle, he sat there in pain for two hours and did not go to the bathroom. <laughs> Oops. Yeah, that's a mistake. Couple more things here. Back to the Future has since grown in esteem and is now considered by critics and audiences to be one of the greatest science fiction films and among the best films ever made. And in 2007, the U.S. Library of Congress selected it for preservation in the National Film Registry. Rick and Morty, of course, was originally supposed to be called Doc and Marty and was directly inspired from this. Back to the Future was released on VHS in 1986. It was priced at $80 or $79.95 becoming the first film to sell 450,000 units at that price point and was also the most rented cassette of the year. And finally, one of the funniest moments from Back to the Future, if you recall, came when Doc Brown, uh, the Doc Brown of 1955, asked Marty who was president of the United States in 85 and then reacted with disbelief when he learned it was the actor, Ronald Reagan. And, And according to Former Reagan speechwriter Mark Weinberg, Reagan, who viewed the film for the first time at Camp David, got a kick out of that early scene when Marty walked by, uh, or when Marty mentioned that, and then when he also walked by a 1955 movie theater which was advertising a Reagan film, Cattle Queen of Montana, from 1954. So he really appreciated that. He did not, however, appreciate that his ex-wife had been mentioned, even though he'd already been married to Nancy Reagan for a couple of years at that point. So they mentioned his ex-wife as being the first lady and Doc Brown was in disbelief, but that's neither here nor there. So all of that, redefining the genre, influencing years of film to come, and just becoming a household movie that I think is appreciated by audiences of, of all ages, not only the young people at the time, but now adults that can look back and say, this is one of the greatest movies that's ever been made. And it was definitely appreciated in its time and has spawned quite a bit of influence across multiple industries. I think for that reason, that's why I put it on my number five on the list. It's certainly, that first movie is certainly excellent. Beyond that. Yeah, I didn't add number two and three on here. Maybe not uh, so much. I I don't mind number two and three. I'll still watch them. I'll hot take. Three is way better than two. That's not a hot take. Two is is not a good movie. People Uh, love two, but I... I thought two was actively bad. Hmm. Well, we can all agree one is the best. I don't mind oh, watching easily. two and three easily. Uh, I, the other thing I think is funny about this is uh, that the DeLorean is the car they pit, built all this off of, and uh, it is objectively uh, like just a horrible, horrible car. <laughs> well, the car just in terms of the car itself, yeah, not a great car as far as its look, and now sure, and sure. now it's. Uh, kind of its status among collectors i get it i mean it's a pretty cool looking yeah, car a, with a yeah, unique yeah, the, feature the with the gull wing door doors exactly yeah. you know my former my former boss uh, when i was working at the skating rink he owned a delorean and he lived across the street from the skating rink which was very convenient he still drove the delorean to work sometimes <laughs> just so he could Listen, drive it <laughs> you're buying you're buying a delorean and you're gonna show it off it's pretty cool he didn't have a flex capacitor, though. No one does. No, I asked him. But some people outfit it to look as if they do. Sure. Which was what I was hoping to see, but that wasn't what I saw. I think he just had some random stuff in his backseat. 
not really backseat. Anyway, you get the point. It's What's a your number five? Good movie. My number five is uh, my first album on the list. Uh, I'm relatively confident that this is not on your list. Uh-oh. This is 1987's album The Joshua Tree by U2. You are correct in assuming that this is not on my list. Uh, so this is the album that makes U2 the biggest band in the world, right? Um, at the That's time. it. At the time. It, it, does it. it certainly did. Mm. This is widely considered to be one of the greatest albums ever made. I certainly think it is. It you said kinda, 1987? 1987. I think you just like it because your name's in it. Nope. I, I have had people make this joke about my name before. It's kind of, you know, not a lot of jokes you can make about Josh other than joshing joshing around i guess and just joshing you limited limited amount there um, i'm gonna reserve my right to make josh related jokes at a later time but for now okay. you may continue anyway uh so this uh this album and the tour associated with this uh kind of redefines what arena rock is at the time and shoves that in a new direction um and it also, the album marks them moving away, U2 moving away from their more punk roots into more of that anthemic um, uh, arena rock direction. They specifically wanted to make music that was a contrast to some of the popular styles of music that were out there in the late 80s, like new wave and synth pop, stuff like that. They're heading in a different direction from that, and that is very apparent in the album. Uh, the guitarist in U2, The Edge, um, he had previously been used, you know, in previous albums had used delay in his guitar effects. This album is kind of where that becomes the most prominent and kind of really solidifies into this is his, this is his unique style. This is U2's unique style, uh, most specifically in, um, in where the streets have no name. That opening of, of that song is incredible. Very good. Uh, suddenly off of the tales of this album, and this uh this tour u is now what most of the rock bands in the world are chasing that's what they want to be joshua tree takes the band's fascination with america from unforgettable fire and kind of makes it the main focus they paired this with a heavy touring presence in it in america and it really paid off three million attendees for the tour overall with a uh apparently a 99.7 percent sellout rate that's a that's a whole lot of tickets. Uh, it was selected by the Library of Congress also uh, in 2018. Notably much later than Back to the Future. Keep later on. than Back to the Future, true. Um, and uh, it kind of marked the real start of the bands, and especially Bono's activist involvement, and not only that, um, especially Bono, not only his being involved in activism, but also being very public about how um, he was being involved in various activist, um, charitable work, stuff like that. And that was received in multiple different ways, some positively, some negatively. Hmm. Uh, but overall, uh, Hey, this album sold 25 million copies. It is one of the best selling albums of all time. And it's very good. And you should listen to it. I listened to it today, actually writing notes for this. I was like, I need to, I need to spin this up. I mean, come on, you get the, the opening 
for opening some of the best like opening four songs of an album ever um you've got where the streets have no name you've got still haven't found what i'm looking for with or without you bullet the blue sky all incredible uh rest of the album also very good but those are the big four standouts for me i do know some of those songs some of the greatest songs ever written i will admit that i have not listened to this album start to finish uh, in the same way that you have you know hundreds of times but as your friend I'm willing to extend an olive branch against my better judgment, and I will listen to this album. So here's my question yes. for you. Is your dislike of YouTube it's rooted Bono. in literally anything besides that South Park episode? Oh, yeah. No, it's Bono in general. It just it seems like in all of the media uh, portrayals that I've seen him, not South Park, um, although South Park kind of exacerbates some of it to an extent. It seems like Bono is just not the type of person that I would like to be around or in particular enjoy any of the things that he has to say. It seems he comes across as super better than thou, kind of cocky, and maybe I'm just projecting, but largely it just feels like he thinks he's better than me and he knows it. And because of all the things that he does, he could say that and get away with it. So a but lot I don't, of I don't a like lot that. of that a lot of that perception of Bono comes out of like nineties U two where um they developed a specific so the, there's a very specific look that we talked about like music videos and uh, before and mm. um his amber tinted glasses sure that's more of a little bit of a later thing right um mm. like like you know uh, how to dismantle and talk bomb early two thousands era U two um the you get into uh, late 80s, you got stuff like Joshua Tree, you got Rattle and Hum, that kind of era of U2, and the promotional artwork, music videos and stuff like that, they have a specific, like, real stripped-down look to them. A lot of the photos, promotional photos, are used in black and white. A lot of the look around them is stoic and everything, and so they kind of developed this theme to them in that time that then... They decided in the 90s, when you have like Zeropa coming out and everything, they go, we want to deconstruct that. We want to tear down what our identity is and just completely rebuild it. And so that's when you really start getting some of the more vocal, over-the-top Bono stuff in terms sure. of, of that. And so that, that kind of comes later than this, right? That's, that is a reaction to Joshua Tree era U2. And that... For me, well, I'll say for me personally, that stuff doesn't work for me as well either. I don't really like 90s U2 that much. I think they get a lot better in 2000s when you get into some of those albums, but um, hmm. they peak. their peak is, is right here at Joshua Tree, in my opinion. Okay. Well, I, you know, I've already said I'm willing to give it another shot. I will listen to this entire album, not for you, but for myself. Because okay. I think I deserve to give it a second shot. I don't know that I'm going to fall in love with you two by any means, but I'm willing to at least listen to it. If you listen to any two, uh, it's, it's Joshua Tree. And if you want the Josh opinion, um, it's Joshua Tree and it's How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb. Those are my two favorites. Uh, all That You Can't what Leave Behind the, is also What are the feature songs from How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb? Uh, Vertigo is the... Oh, is, I know Vertigo. Is, yeah, you know Vertigo. Vertigo. Is I didn't everywhere. hate Vertigo. Vertigo's I mean, yeah, good. it was super popular. It was fun. Uh, Miracle Drug, uh, um, 
uh, totally blank on the name of the song now. Um, Oh, City of Blinding Lights. Uh, I want to say Obama used that multiple times for State of the Union address music. Um, no, let's not let's not make it political. All right. <laughs> but yeah, a uh, lot of I I like both of those albums front to back in ways that I frankly I don't like any other U two album front to back like I do these two. I think your love of U two may have blinded you a little bit when creating this list together. I think this is genuinely wildly influential album. Hugely popular. Sure. Big shift in rock music. Why don't we take a quick break and we can hear about my number four, which is an even bigger album with even bigger influence. Notably, not the number one album I have on my list, but yeah, let's go to break. Stick around, folks. Hello and welcome back. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. You know, if you have show ideas or comments, you can definitely reach out to us. I, I would prefer that you email us at stupidsequence at gmail.com. I think Twitter is maybe becoming a little more difficult to navigate these days, uh, unfortunately. And as a result, I can't guarantee the longevity of it. But in the interim, email us. Our email will still be there. And for our couple, two, three people that frequently listen to this show, we really appreciate you. Thank you for being here. You should reach out to us. And with that, let's continue. So, Scott, we did opt through our number fives. No duplicates yet, and we're told there's three duplicates in the top five here. So, curious to see what you've got coming up next with your number four. Yeah, if there's no duplicate at four, that means our top three are all duplicates, which is that's a little bit funny. I know two of them for sure are, but okay. My number four is notably uh, another album that was also featured in the Library of Congress for oh. National Recording Registry. It also sold more al- albums than the U2 Joshua Tree. This one is Thriller by Michael Jackson. Uh, there's a duplicate. Uh, yeah, this is my sense. number one. Ooh, uh, I, I guess I get it. Uh, before we proceed, I was going to say this at the, put a disclaimer here at the top of the show. Forgot to do that, so we're doing it now. Um, just going to say, uh, we're talking about media from the 80s, so there's going to be uh, controversial figures that show up from time to time. Placement on the list does not mean that we, the podcast, endorse this person. No, we just recognize its significance during that decade. Right. So that being said, let's talk about Thriller by Michael Jackson. Yeah, so released in November 29th of 1982, one of the biggest albums of the decade. uh, The the best-selling of all time. 32 million copies sold worldwide by the end of just 1983. And yes, the best-selling album of all time. 70 million. It's incredible. It is I mean, so far beyond even the second place one. It is, yeah. It is the best-selling non-compilation album and second best-selling album overall in the United States and was certified 34 times platinum. The, the next closest is Back in Black by ACDC, and it is 20 million fewer sales. Yeah, that's quite a few. 
also notably an honorable mention on my list back in black. Yeah. Uh, it also won a record breaking eight Grammy awards at the 1984 Grammys and album of the year while beat it won record of the year. Uh, Jackson also won a record breaking eight American music awards at the 84 American music awards. The album has been a frequent inclusion in lists of the greatest albums of all time. And in 2008, it was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. And then in the same year, of course, the Library of Congress added it. So it it was the top-selling album of 1983 and 1984, but also, yes, of all time. There have been countless, countless people who have been influenced by Michael Jackson in general, and specifically this album. And, And so just to name a few, Beyonce. You know, if it wasn't for Michael Jackson, I would have never, ever performed. Direct quote. Britney Spears. This is someone who has inspired me and just about everybody in this room and the world, and I consider him the artist of the millennium. He's a true innovator who pioneered the art of music video, broke down countless barriers, and sold more records than any other artist along the way. There's a few other ones here. Janet Jackson, Justin Timberlake, Snoop Dogg, Usher, just to name a few. Bruno Mars. These are... Celine Dion. Oh, yeah. I, I couldn't list them all because sure. there are just so many people who are directly influenced by Michael Jackson and by this album. And I think I, no- I noted Britney Spears, her comments in general, because she's one of the ones that pointed out his pioneering of the music video. Right. Thriller was one of the first music videos to appear on MTV and pioneered a storytelling style that became relevant to music videos in general. So he he re- really defined what a good music video could be. And then beyond that, I I think we all know the dance that was created for this music video or or for this song. Uh it became overwhelmingly popular during that era during dances. It came up on talk sure. shows. It was and, on and media. Then, and then the the moonwalk is first performed around Thriller, the album, not Thriller, the song, but Thriller, the album. That's right. Yes. Yeah. uh, Seven singles were released from this album. The Girl is Mine, Billie Jean, Beat It, Wanna Be Starting Something, Human Nature, PYT, or Pretty Young Thing, and Thriller. They all reached the top 10 on the US billboards, setting a record for the most top 10 singles from an album, with, of course, Beat It and Billie Jean reaching number one. It has spawned a, a number of uh, of covers as well. I, I believe this is one of the most covered songs of all time, Billie Jean. Yeah, I, uh, I saw a credit that said uh, notable covers of uh, Thriller, um, the album, songs from Thriller, the album, over 350. I, I think this is also one of the most recognizable albums where Michael Jackson appears in a a white suit. He's kind of laying down and staring. Yeah. The album cover itself. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I think, but I, I I get why you put it at number one. I, I really struggled to order the top four here. Sure. It was really hard. Uh, but I, I had a very particular reason why this was not higher up on the list. And you'll see that as we go through some of the rest of my list, but yeah. What, what else did you have for thriller? Uh, I, I just want to stress uh, more on the, the music video stuff, especially 
um you know billy jean thriller beat it are the the kind of breakthrough music videos here especially uh billy jean i would consider to be the best michael jackson song uh absolutely love it um it is an i'm incredible not song. i am not a huge michael jackson fan in general outside of some of the biggest singles but i genuinely love billy jean think it's a fantastic song um we, we uh, did not mention uh michael jackson's moniker as the king of pop which was oh, yes, granted course. to him initially by uh the actress elizabeth taylor and then he kind of started calling himself that uh not too long after that because you know elizabeth taylor gives that to you you take it <laughs> um, sure He's credited as being the most influential dancer since Fred Astaire, just in terms of uh, mass influence and and uh, kind of making a difference in the art form. Um, and then I don't think you can talk enough about uh, how this album, Michael Jackson in general, but this album especially breaks broke down racial barriers in the music industry. Um, you had a bunch of really gross stuff from back in, you know, before before the 80s and even leading into the 80s of um, radio stations that wouldn't play music from black artists. Um, MTV uh, notably avoided playing music videos from black artists early on. Um, and then this album came out and was just so incredibly popular that even racism could not stop it. There's just like we are we will actively be losing money if we do not have this album. We we cannot we just we cannot not play it, you know. Um and so that once that barrier is broken, that starts opening the doors for all kinds of other black musicians to I mean obviously black musicians have been around for forever, but um within the United States, that he broke down a lot of the barriers to for black musicians to have mass market appeal in a way that just wasn't possible before. Absolutely. So that I think that maybe more than anything else is what what has him take the number or, or not Michael Jackson specifically, but has this album take the top spot for me. Yep, totally get it. And and to your point, I think Usher and Justin Timberlake specifically were talking about the choreography. Mm-hmm. that that came from or was inspired by michael uh usher straight up said yeah no i definitely i took some of the same moves and i applied them in different ways but it was it was directly from watching his music videos but yeah no it's uh I, it's no wonder i mean this is an incredible song i would say thriller the the title song from the album i don't listen to it often Usually it's around Halloween and it gets a number of plays, but then after that, it's not really on my regular play, but yeah, of of the big three from this album, Thriller is probably my least favorite. I think beat it is quite good. Notably didn't mention, uh, the guitar part on beat. It was actually performed by Eddie Van Halen. Oh, uh, he was paid for it with a, um, a case of beer. Because he owed oh. the producer a favor. Well, that's pretty cool. Yep. I I don't think I found that in my research, so that's that's a nice little addition. But yeah, uh, but Billie Jean, that's the that's the real standout here for me. Okay. Well, we need to jump to your number four because if we say too much more, it might spoil my number three. Interesting. Ooh. Okay. Ooh. Hmm. Go ahead, number four. Uh, my number four is we're going to stick around, keep talking about music related things, but also television. 
Uh, number four on my list is the MTV Top 20 Video Countdown. Hmm. Okay, so we're we're gonna we're gonna say that this is a duplicate then. Okay. Because just generally speaking, I considered MTV the TV network to mm-hmm. be a piece of media because sure. it is my number three. And so yeah. I'm gonna say it's close enough. Yeah, I I was where I was landing on this. It's interesting. I I, I didn't necessarily expect this to be one of the duplicates. I don't think we can have this list without talking about MTV in some fashion. I decided to try to attach it to a specific show, which is their top 20 video countdown as part of that. But if we want to just, if we're both comfortable just boiling it down to MTV in general, I'm fine doing that. Yeah, I I think absolutely it makes sense because it is a piece of media that was created in the 80s and I don't think Michael Jackson's thriller is as big as it becomes without the help of MTV. Well, and, 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 and not to get into it too much here, I think that's a symbiotic relationship. I think it goes back and forth. I don't think MTV is as big as it is without this album and the music videos associated with it. Okay, yeah. But go ahead. Why don't you uh, kick it off and I'll add some things after. Sure. Um. Yeah, the, the the top twenty video countdown starts in nineteen eighty four, but MTV itself is what in nineteen eighty two or eighty one. I think it's eighty one. Eighty one. August eighty one. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, that MTV really gets started, and um, on my list, I have a a column for what specific influence does this have? And my entry, the my main argument here is in how the public consume consumes music, fundamentally shifts as a result of MTV. Mm-hmm. Um, not just consume, but also how the public thought about music, right? The take took the concept of music videos, which have been around for decades before this, you have music videos going back as far as like the mid sixties. Um, and it makes them into a cultural landmark. Every single, like every single single, <laughs> um, had to have a music video, right? Um, Music video directors built entire careers and transitioned to other types of movie making off the backs of how popular music videos were were becoming. The visual appearance and style of different acts was now just as important as what the music sounded like. It's just marked this this fundamental shift in the entire music industry. You're right. Some directors like Spike Jones, right? Being John Malkovich, uh, he was the director for that. He got his start creating music videos. Or Michael Gondry, who did Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, also worked on music videos before segueing into feature films. Uh, Mick G is another one who started off as a music video director. Hmm. But yeah. Um, did you have more to add on this? Yeah, the, the, you know, the show itself, um, if you're not familiar with, with what the um, top, top 20 20- countdown Top oh, yeah, very familiar. Was, was just every weekend because like VH1 went later went on VH1 didn't start till the 90s but that they basically just straight up copied this format was every weekend they would have their show that was we're going to cover here's the top what the top 20 singles were this week and play those music videos associated with it and you had sure. MTV had um they had their different VJs, right? The video jockeys. Video uh-huh. jockeys, yeah. yeah. Um, and so they kind of became minor celebrities in their own right off the back of this because this just MTV was so widely watched 
that people start becoming familiar with the names of these people and the different mm. um and, and then they had careers launched from just being the person who says here's what the music the next music video is you know right um it's just a wild thing that i don't think anybody could have predicted um and somebody certainly had not idea. a career that they went to school for no no <laughs> Just, I mean, just more of the concept of MTV in general is the, 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 the sheer utter popularity of it is remarkable um, and, and kind of out of nowhere. Yeah, so a couple other things I'll add to that then. Uh, August 1st of 1981, MTV Music Television goes on air for the first time with the words spoken by one of MTV's creators, John Lack. It was quoted, ladies and gentlemen, rock and roll. And the Buggles Video Killed the Radio Star was the very first music video to air on the new cable television channel. Which I considered, I considered, sorry to interrupt here. I considered putting, when I first went and looked at this, I was like, do I want to put Video Killed the Radio Star on this as emblematic of MTV and kicking off MTV? But that uh, song came out in the 90s. Or the, not 90s. That song came out in 1979. The song came out a decade after MTV. Yeah, it's wild. Holy no, crap. It came out in 1979. Um, so uh, not, not ultimately not eligible. Talk about Back to the Future. No, you're right. You're right. Great song, though. I, I really like it. Um, just kind of poppy in a kind of a, oh, this is fun kind of way. Uh, but it, it only aired to, in households and parts of New Jersey. Pretty small initially, but they went on to revolutionize the music industry, of course, and became an influential source of both pop culture and entertainment. So in the early days, its programming consisted of just basic music videos that were introduced by, like we said, VJs, and they were provided for free by record companies. And as the record industry recognized that MTV's value as a promotional vehicle, money was invested in that now making creating cutting edge videos and that's when they started bringing in some of these better directors making these things a little bit more polished and working on videos before like i said they go into major filmmaking in the 1980s mtv was instrumental in promoting the careers of performers like madonna michael jackson which we've already discussed prince duran duran because their videos were played in in very heavy rotation sure sure and mtv also debuted more than just that uh a few different animated series including beavis and butthead and celebrity deathmatch as well as documentaries news game shows and public service campaigns on topics ranging from voting rights to safe sex mtv developed a reputation for pushing cultural boundaries and taste and so I said I hadn't heard Like a Prayer. I wasn't familiar with it. It it sounded something that was kind of familiar, and here's why. I had a note here. The airing of Madonna's 1989 Like a Prayer video is a famous example of this. So I maybe I need to go back and actually watch this video and see what was so it's, special about it's it. It's really weird. It's real. It's a really weird video. Okay. Well, in 1984, the channel also launched the MTV Music Video Awards kind of a big deal at the time so uh you're right mtv in general revolutionized the way that people consumed music and there was at least a time in my life and it it wasn't the mtv era it was more like in the vh1's top 20 era Mm -hmm. where i actually did watch this every week and i would have it playing kind of in the background in my room while i did other things 
And then because there were so many commercials and it took so long to get through the videos and I'm like, that's number one. What? That's crazy. I can't believe that jumped up. And I, I frequently remember talking to people about this at school. So not only did it start the influence in the eighties from MTV, but the jumping point from there to VH1 or to other music video channels, I I think it's, it's still just as important. And I think YouTube's success is an, additional indicator because some of the top videos ever viewed on youtube are music videos yeah for sure most most of the most watched videos are music videos sure i think justin bieber was up there and i I couldn't tell you all of them lady gaga maybe is up there selena gomez things that the kids like i don't know it's just quick side note um talking with uh my wife the other day um about how uh, uh justin bieber came up specifically and talking about how like you know when 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 i was a teen or you know early 20s and stuff like that justin mm-hmm. bieber was the thing that was popular with the kids and i don't think that's the case anymore i think we're too far gone from that the kids no longer care about justin bieber no he's no longer relevant not like he was no, I mean, we're talking, still, I'm sure he's like, still got his fans, but those those fans who loved his stuff are like 20 now, you know? Right. I'm t- we're talking like 10 years ago. Yeah. Right. So the 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 14 year olds maybe don't even care 15 about years ago. Sure. Yeah. No. No. Who do they care about? I no. I'm I'm really asking. I maybe don't about. know streamers. Oh, streamers. Yep. That'd be my guess. Uh, I based Olivia on conversations Rodrigo. with. No, based on conversations with my own kids, the YouTubers and streamers that they mention, I think, are probably higher up on that Mr. list. Mr. Beast. Not as popular with them. Markiplier comes up a number of times. That's unfortunate. Anyway, I'd, I'm not going to comment on YouTubers or streamers. Bottom 10 worst YouTubers. Oh, God. We're not talking about that right nope. now. Nope. <laughs> nightmare episodes let's that, go that could that could get real dark real quick it like, sure could we're not having that oh conversation. boy all right what do um, you got anything else to say about mtv oh i i agree that it's a symbiotic relationship but i do think that mtv's existence helped launch michael jackson and madonna specifically and that's why i put it a higher on the list but it was tough it was a real close call Perhaps we'll uh, discuss more of this later. Sure. Why don't we just, since that was my number three, why don't we just jump over to your number three? Which, All right. spoilers, I'm pretty sure is going to be a duplicate. My number three is uh, almost certainly a duplicate, I think. Uh, it's the next movie on my list. This is, maybe you've heard of Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back. Guess what? Yeah. It's not a duplicate. It's not it's a not duplicate. On my list. You did not put Empire on this list, huh? I really wanted to. Wow. Well, you're wrong. For personal reasons. You're but tr- you're extremely wrong. But let's, I, let's I decided not to, okay. and I I will say, uh, it it did not even make my top ten. Well, let's dig into why this is objectively one of the most culturally influential things to happen in the '80s. Um, Again, your personal judgment clouds. Keep going. 
I have a ton of stuff on this list that I don't particularly even love. We've hit we've hit some of the items on here before, especially lower on my list. We get to the yeah, the 8 Joshua through 10. Tree. Yeah, no, I got you. Uh-huh. When we get to the eight through ten, like here's the thing: I never really watched MTV like at all. Uh, that was not an MTV kid. I was not allowed to consume secular music until I was like in my early teens. Uh, and even then, did not. Why really don't watch you talk MTV about your number three? Anyway, my number three: Empire Strikes Back. Highest yeah, grossing of movie. movie of 1980. Grossed $401.5 million. Things that this movie does that are significantly culturally relevant, let's say. It fortifies Industrial Light and Magic as the premier special effects house in the industry. That has continued on to today. ILM is one of the most fundamental parts of the film industry for the last 40 years. Um, just in terms of cutting edge special effects without ILM movies look different today, period. This continues to, you know, uh, empire takes what star Wars, the uh, new hope built in 77. And then it's just f- propels that forward. And, uh, mo- one of the other most notable things around that is the movie merchandising machine. Star Wars generated merchandise in a way that nothing else really had before that, and Empire is where that really starts kicking off. Uh, that makes sense. That that's huge. That that is a huge, huge amount of money, and much like we talked about with Batman, um, Star Star Wars in an even bigger sense, I think, is starting to shift, and, and Empire Strikes Back especially is starting to shift. How do how does Hollywood make money off of movies beyond just movie tickets, right? Um and an empire is is starting to come up with again, not creating, but but spinning up more, popularizing more, making more money than the, in areas like merchandising things like that than movies ever really had. There's there's tons of prominent um moments from this movie that are constantly quoted and uh referenced and parodied e- even within other major media including the uh perhaps the most famous incorrect movie quote of all time Luke I am your father not not actually said in the movie I was going to say that's not the quote it's no I am your father um but it's a, it's right. that but that got so heavily circulated right is everybody knows Luke I am your father even though that's the wrong quote um this movie consistently reviewed as one of the greatest movies ever made, even 43 years later. Um, it, it is so, so big. Wait, and spoilers. Uh-huh. Darth Vader, Luke yes. Skywalker's father. It's true. It's true. Um, this, the, the reach of this movie was big enough to the point where like political cartoons from the time were referencing Empire Strikes Back. Um, I would say that this is the most parody scenes from this movie are the, some of the most parodied in a movie ever. Uh, just all kinds of, you know, the, the Han Solo lay frozen carbonite, him talking to Leia. I love you. I know the Luke, I am your father stuff. The, um, the, you know, Emperor Palpatine showing up for the first time and how much parody stuff there is done of him, you know, um, you have dish towels, or not dish towels, hand towels in your bathroom, I think, that say, I love you, and I know. Yeah, uh, we do. Those are a gift from my stepmom. It's a good gift. 
Dozens of the most prominent filmmakers today cite this as direct inspiration. Way, way too many to list, but um, tons of the most popular directors in the last 20 years directly cite Empire as, this is the reason I got into making movies. And then um, kind of the last major thing I have here to talk about is this kind of popularized um, a couple different things within movies. The concept of the trilogy as the premier franchise movie making style and the concept of uh, like a mega franchise. Star Wars is kind of the first one of those within movies. The closest you get before that is like James Bond. That's exactly what I was thinking. And that's just not anywhere near, especially like in, you know, let's say the, the, the more recent James Bond movies have had like way bigger money-making stuff um like your 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 damn big stuff um that has had that massive market marketing push behind it but like 1980 james bond ain't what it is today and it and it ain't star wars right sure the the uh, and then the other piece of that of this mega franchise this trilogy as the premier franchise route for movies is this also popularizes the movie trope of the dark middle chapter for trilogies specifically as the middle movie is the one where um where oh things aren't looking good and we gotta have to we have to have the third movie where um they're able to come back from the darkness and win everything you know we just talked about two towers in last week's episode and that's another one of those right um it's Although, not, it's that, you know, that's present in the book, certainly, but they sure. play, I, I would argue that they play up in that movie specifically, they play up some of those, like the dark middle chapter portions of the two towers to fit this trope better in the movie. Sure. But you're absolutely correct, right? They end this film on kind of a low note, right? You, you know, there has to be more on Hans frozen carbonite. Done. Yeah. You know, Luke's had his hand cut off. That's a bummer. Just added to the shock value of the film. Sure. But yeah, I, I think indisputably Empire is like, like all of pop culture today is different if Empire Strikes Back doesn't come out. Or if it comes out and wasn't, didn't take off, you know? Sure. And I had some notes on this one because it was on one of my initial lists. I think in my mind, because of our discussion surrounding the impact of that decade versus the lasting impact, we decided to do a more focused on the decade itself. And while sure. I think it was popular in the decade and influential to some degree, I think its impact beyond the decade is more substantial and more noticeable because of its really establishment of the Star Wars fan base. 77, the initial release. Yeah, you got quite a few nerds that came out and saw it and were all geeked about it. But not until Empire Strikes Back did it really take off and yep. more and more people really started to enjoy it. But that compounded from there and created just this massive entity that only grew in success later. And I think while it's, like I said, it has impact in the 80s and especially in the early 80s, it's really kind of episode six not quite as good it's not it's not bad by any means but it's not quite as good as five 
Agreed. And as a result, I think that kind of detracts from it a little bit or its significance during the decade, because that only came out a couple of years later. But long term, the what this means for the Star Wars franchise, what it means for all of the things that are produced as a result of this being initially popular or kind of changing the way effects are done. Yeah, I think the the long lasting success is it outweighs it significantly. I don't. So I chose uh, I, not to include it on my list as a result of that. Uh, well, I think we'll dig into this argument a little bit more. Um, you know, in the in the final discussion here once we get there. But um, uh, Return of the Jedi made more money than Empire did. Like the 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 idea that Star Wars is waning at that point, I think is 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 completely incorrect. No, no, not waning per se. I think that it made more money, but it wasn't as good of a film and it left people wanting more and not for many, many years did we get anything more. And when we finally did, it was lackluster at best. Uh, initially, not yeah. now, I would say. If you if you dig into why that stuff happened the way that it did, there's there's bigger reasons for that beyond people weren't clamoring for more Star Wars because they certainly were. George Lucas had talked for a while about wanting to do, you know, as he marketed these eventually got marketed as episodes four, five, and six. He had been talking, he talked for a while about how he wanted to do one, two, and three. And that took a long time to happen. Obviously and a big portion of that is he really, really did not want to direct those movies and he could not get anyone, any of his buddies in the film industry to, t- to be willing to take it on. So eventually he went, okay, I'm just going to do it. But yeah, anyway, well, I think, we can, I we think can say gonna, further, further. We'll dig into that. For, yeah. A little bit more. But yeah, that's, uh, that's my number three, uh, empire strikes back. We're into your number two and that's right. And I think it means my number two is not the duplicate, which okay. is admittedly a little bit disappointing. My final one must be a duplicate then it, it is. And I, I'm sure it is because it's my number one. Uh, so my number i'm surprised that that's your number one then okay well my number two is super mario brothers oh okay super mario brothers is uh the duplicate oh oh well then holy that's why i say i'm like this is surprising to me that that would be huh interesting okay well in, in that case we both have it at number two that's funny yeah it is a little bit funny so i think as we all know, Super Mario Brothers, one of the biggest video game franchises of all time, it really all stems back and is rooted in this one video game, Super Mario Brothers. So there are over 700 games on the NES, none of which have had the impact on the industry as Shigeru Miyamoto's beloved style or title of Super Mario Brothers. The game has had something that no other game had at the time it was released, which was it was a launch title, not only for the NES, but also the Japanese family computer, which was, I believe, a very similar device. Super Mario Brothers features an impressive soundtrack, very recognizable even to this day, commonly reused in, in all types of media. It is bright and well-rendered pixelated graphics, that style of pixelation and graphics also gets mimicked throughout media and, of course, entertaining gameplay. The scoring system offered up competitive play for a second player, which was, until that point, much less common. Not completely out of the question, but definitely common. Uh, uncommon, excuse me. 
The game was packed with tons of hidden items, secret areas, and warp zones. And while Super Mario Bros. influenced side-scrolling games, its most significant accomplishment centers on how it saved the video game industry. Because in 1983, the industry suffered a major crash. And it kind of looked like video games might actually be more of that passing fad as opposed to the eventual juggernaut that it evolved into. So the release of Super Mario Brothers and the NES changed all that, showing there was still a market for consoles and well-made titles. And many credit the game with saving the industry, making it one of the most important games of the 80s and, of course, of all time. And I, you probably have some t- statistics on how many copies were sold. I, I believe it was like 12 million in the first year. And in its lifetime, it's well above that. I, it's yeah, significant. It, it's the seventh best selling video game of all time, even now. Uh, 58 million copies sold to date. That's uh, a lot. The Mario series overall, including all of the various spinoffs of which there are uh, numerous, over 100, 35, or sorry, 36, nope, 35, can't read, $35 billion for that series alone. It's a lot. It's a lot of money. Yeah. Okay, so if we want to break down Mario Bros, Super Mario Bros, there's important distinction here because Nintendo coming into 1985, coming into the release of the um, Super Nintendo in the United States, sorry, Super Nintendo, the NES, Nintendo Entertainment System in 1985, um, had had success for years before that in the arcade space, right? You have stuff like Donkey Kong and the original Mario Bros, not Super Mario Bros, but Mario Bros arcade machine as kind of like single screen arcade cabinets. Um, were hugely, hugely popular. Um, they come out with, like you said, the Japanese Family Computer, also known as the Famicom, in 83 in Japan, and then they redesign it in 85 and put it out in the United States as the NES. Um, you kind of talk some about how um, this saves the game industry. Um, that's that's maybe a little bit of a misnomer here um, in that... Um, this saves cons. This saves home consoles because the NES is not the same. Uh, not the first home console you have. You have Atari and various things like that ahead of that. But like you said, there's the big crash in '83. A lot of people like to attribute that to um, ET to ET. <laughs> you know, which a, is kind of also a misnomer. Sure, there's a there's a variety of facts f- factors that went into ET is just emblematic. This is the easiest emblematic thing to point to of the types of garbage that was just being made, the shovelware that was being put out onto home consoles at the time and being charged way too much money for it. Um, regardless of exactly why it happens, home consoles crash. Nintendo brings the NES to United States and markets it not as a video game console but as a toy. And they get it onto toy store shelves that way in a way that um, to because because retailers weren't interested in a another video game console because people weren't buying those. But it's the Nintendo Entertainment System, this toy for kids that pe- things are going to latch onto. It gets on toy store toy store shelves for really the first time and it explodes. It just goes nuts. People are buying these like crazy and. Uh, it's estimated and and so mario bros super mario bros is the packing game initially right for the nes right uh and 
resulting result of this by 1990 studies are saying children are more familiar with mario as a character than mickey mouse uh it's an incredible takeover just blew off blew up in a way mickey mouse is a character that had been around for what uh 60 years at that point almost long time uh and then mario in five years overtakes that it popularized you, t- you talked a little bit about popularizing side scrolling games this mm-hmm. isn't this is far from the first side scroller um vehicle based side scrollers like defender stuff like that existed a number of years before that but mario is one of the first ever scrolling platformers and that mm-hmm. kind of direct style of character control was um mario's kind of not the very first, but one of the very first games to do that. It is directly inspired by one of the even earlier games to do that, which is Data East Kung Fu Master by Shigeru Miyamoto, who's the uh, the lead creator on Mario, um, legendary game developer, mm-hmm. um, has cited uh, Kung Fu Master as kind of a direct inspiration for um, making their own version of the genre of uh, what... Miyamoto and other folks at Nintendo at the time called platformers. They referred to them as athletic games, which I think is really funny. That's a, that's a funny. Cause I mean, you it's think about it, it, like it's a good running, way to it. running and jumping is like, yeah, that's athletic. You, you know, jumping's hard. I don't know if you've jumped much Pun- lately. Punching blocks. I, sure. I did. I jumped a lot today, actually. Uh, but it's, it's hard work. So well, I mean, I what is that. running except jumping forward over and over and over again? okay sure (laughs) um but yeah no mario uh is you know pretty pretty inarguably one of the most important video games of all time that's gotta be in like in a top 10 maybe you know maybe that's a future episode top 10 most important video games of all time um certainly there um i think it overtakes pac-man as most influential for um you know certainly bigger long-term impact and i would argue bigger impact within the 80s as well pac-man fever happens and is around for several years mario and the release of the nes um starts a train starts a train that doesn't stop ever ever period. still going to it's this day still yep. going you know it slowed down a little bit at times you know the uh the gamecube maybe didn't sell quite as well the wii u certainly didn't sell quite as well but for the most part nintendo like other and, and, thing for them. and mario specifically like like if you look at mario kart 8 uh which came out uh what uh mario kart 8 is originally on the wii u so that first release there is 2014. So that's nine years ago. Mario oh, wow. Kart 8 is consistently in like the top 20 games sold every week. Still, nine years later. Hmm. It's wild. That game is, that is, that, kind of- that game is actually has outsold the original Super Mario Bros. at this point. I wonder why that one in particular. Maybe that, that's a... It's that's the a Mario Kart that's on game. the Switch. That's mm-hmm. why. Because the Switch is just wildly, wildly popular, and people really like Mario Kart. Sure. So, but yeah, that's everything I got on Mario. I could talk for way longer on Mario, but that's what I got for for this right now. Well, we both had it at number two, so that makes sense. 
Well, I guess that all that's left is for me to tell you what my number one is. Your number one, which is not, in fact, a duplicate. It is not. And this is a little bit of a surprise. I imagine it's on your top ten, but okay. I, ex- I expected it to be up there higher. And it's one, in fact, that we, in passing, definitely discussed. And to reiterate, uh, we are not condoning the uh-huh. people. Okay. Hmm. It is a duplicate. Number- uh-huh. Okay, so number one for me is The Cosby Show. Yeah, it's my number nine. Okay. It is very difficult to argue how insanely popular this show was. Literally the number one TV show from 1985 to 1990. Every single year. The most TV popular di- TV show of the 80s. Yes. Like, ab- inarguable. Bar none. TV Guide describes it as television's biggest hit in the 1980s, which, quote, almost single-handedly revived the sitcom genre. Mm -hmm. And what's more, it revived the sitcom on kind of new terms. The Cosby Show is often credited for breaking new ground in the media visibility of African Americans, laying track for later shows with predominantly black casts, including Fresh Prince, Family Matters, and progressively-minded campus comedy spinoff, A Different World, which I'm not familiar with, but it was mentioned here. Uh, Although some might say that the show merely picked up where the Jeffersons and Good Times left off. I disagree, and I think widely it's also disagreed, because The Cosby Show remains the most-watched show featuring a predominantly black cast in the history of American TV. And for five of the eight years that it ran, it was the most-watched show in America. Period beloved by audiences of all colors and walks of life. So even in 2014, 30 years since the pilot first aired, The Cosby Show resonates with a timeless relevance. It was a show about African Americans with broad appeal, and that that much is undeniable. But even more significant is the, the failure of any show in three decades since then to come close to matching the impact that The Cosby Show had on how African Americans are perceived and how they perceive themselves. Uh, Beyond that, The Cosby Show has been described by some as a show which redefined blackness, presenting a nuclear construct that, until its 1984 debut, was not even considered a possibility. According to an editorial for News One, quote, but black America knew better. For a number of African-American viewers and critics, The Cosby Show did not redefine blackness in so much that it showcased another aspect of black American life, a black narrative that focused on education instead of poverty, a black narrative that focused on art instead of gang violence, and a black narrative that focused on love instead of pathology. And this is true. Though the Jeffersons focused on upper-class African-American family, their wealth and quality of life was intentionally novel, the windfall with what they moved on up to the Upper East Side being the literal basis for the show, Cosby Show was way more homely than that. It was it was way more it was way more real and, and relatable in a way that, like I said, it spanned all different walks of life. So with that being so insanely popular, really helping revive the sitcom in general and creating such a just a powerhouse of media, people wanted and this sounds terrible in retrospect, of course, but people wanted Mr. Huxtable to be their dad. I mean, they, they saw how he behaved with his children, how he interacted. They knew that he was 
in the show, his character, a model as a father. And in a lot of ways, help people decide who they wanted to be as a person. The character. Sure. Not the, per- not the actual actor. Yeah, this is one that's maybe a little harder to separate from the uh, person involved, given the things that they did. Uh, but, you know, we're yeah, doing our best. Turns out Bill Cosby, not the best person in the world. Real piece of shit. Um, yeah. Uh, but, well, you know, that's... Uh, Which is most unfortunate, but you really cannot argue. I mean... Yeah, we're, TV, we're, not, we're not considering that here. No. We're talking TV about was the such TV a show. core part of life, especially, like, MTV really brought more people to television. People were already watching television, but they were watching it for other sitcoms and things prior to that, uh, notably MASH or other really popular TV shows of the seventies and early eighties. But with, with this, it kind of added another layer where people as a family were starting to sit down and really watch this together because each person within the family found a part they could relate to and it helped facilitate conversations that would not necessarily have happened, which I think is, is really cool. So it helped redefine that it was undeniably important as a TV show in general, but also for African-Americans. I think it's, it's a a great addition to this list. It was an easy number one pick for me. Once I thought about more specifically, what did this mean for that decade? And I think for literally half the decade, it was one of the most important things going on at all times. Uh, the height of its popularity in the late eighties, uh, they were getting, they were pulling in 40 million viewers an episode. It's a lot. It's a, a lot, lot of people. people. It's a lot of people per episode. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. Wow. Very, very big show. So that's, that's why I picked it as my number one. I, again, Bill Cosby, real piece of crap, but the show itself, and I've watched the show myself a few times, especially on like, late night reruns and as a kid when they they used to re-air some of these episodes kind of in once it was in syndication and and i've seen the show and i've enjoyed it quite a bit um i i don't think it's timeless i think there's a lot of things that are indicative of the age of the show but in general i i think it's it's pretty good and yeah i get i get why people watched it so much cosby show for me i have zero nostalgia for it didn't watch it as a kid at all have seen let's say 10 to 20 episodes somewhere in there. And I don't really have much love for it. Um, I watched all of my Cosby show before the uh, horrible things about Bill Cosby came to light. Um, so not colored by that. Um, I it just never really clicked with me. Um, yeah, well, it's not for everyone, but I get why it was on there. And it was an easy number one for my list. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's certainly got to be on this list somewhere. Maybe sure. number one. Why don't we but. take another quick break and then we can round out our top 10 and talk about... I, I have so many honorable mentions. I, sure. I'm i going to just try my best not to talk too long on them, but <laughs> there's some I got to say some things about. Yeah, well, we'll, uh, we'll take a second break here. We'll come back in a bit, talk about um, our 8 through 10s. Uh, any honorable mentions that we might have, and then we'll dig into what belongs on the official top 10 list. So stick around, folks.
Welcome back, everyone. And by everyone, I mean the two to three people that listen to every episode. If you made it this far, then, well, you already know you're enjoying yourself. That's why you're here. But in that case, if you could give us an honest rating, a review, or referring a friend, it would really go a long way to get the word out. And I, I'd, I'd like to specifically emphasize referring a friend because I think that is absolutely the best way for our, us to get it out there that we're enjoying ourselves on this podcast. Like Josh said, we are 17. This is episode 17. 17 episodes in. I think it's a, an indication that we're in this for the long haul. We're still enjoying ourselves quite a bit. We're still having fun arguing. And as far as I know, we're still friends. So thank you again for listening. That's we're going to move on. Well, yeah, okay. Uh, well, this is awkward. It's all we part might of have to have another conversation. Undermine Scott. This is what we said last episode. Cameron is apparently taking over the podcast, and we yeah, he didn't show know. up today. I, I'm gonna have to dock his pay. Pay? <laughs> Wait, you're getting paid? Okay. Well, with that being said, tell us your eight, and we already know your nine, your ten, and your honorable mentions, and we'll go from there. All right. Uh, my number eight. Uh, let's go through these last remaining ones quickly here. Uh, is Die Hard. Hey, my number eight's Die Hard. Wow, we had a couple dead on duplicates (laughs) there. Uh, 1988 film. Um, This kind of reshapes action movies by going against what was the current popular mold. You know, your Arnold Schwarzenegger, big muscle action heroes, way over the top cool guy stuff. Um, It's way more restrained of a movie than the way that most action movies were not. This takes place in one building over one night. Um, also most notably, uh, it's not about Vietnam, which most are, uh, inspired by Vietnam stuff, which is what most action movies were relating back to at the time. Sure. It also inspired a subgenre that name checks itself. Oh, this one is diehard on a plane. Oh, this one is diehard on a boat. This one's diehard sure. in the oval office. Like that, that's huge. I, I think like, and of course you, we can argue about is diehard a Christmas movie because it takes place on Christmas. To each their own. But anyway. The the subgenre is good guy trapped with bad guys in limited space. Alan Rickman. Incredible. Keep going. Alan Rickman's very good. Uh, My number nine was The Cosby Show. And then my number ten, I talked about having things that I don't really care about on. I don't really care for on here. I don't love Die Hard, honestly. Um, I think it's okay. Maybe a little overrated, but it's cultural impact cannot be denied. Um, my number 10 is something I actively dislike, and that is the stage production of Cats. Created by Ew. Andrew Lloyd Webber, 1981. Um, boy, this was wildly, wildly popular uh, in the 80s and beyond. For, uh, I didn't even consider this. Yeah, at the time. Kutsuki, you, you know how big Cats was, right? Um, oh, yeah. At the time, it was the longest-running stage production in the 80s. Um, later on, it got surpassed by Phantom of the Opera, also from Andrew Lloyd Webber, um, all, which also came out in the 80s. But I would argue Cats may be a larger influence because Phantom doesn't happen the way that it does if Cats doesn't happen, right? Mm, um, it was his launching point. No, I gotcha. Uh, it paved the way for blockbuster musicals. Cats is the first one to really take over in that space. So later, uh, your best examples of that later on are stuff like Phantom or Les Mis or, uh, you know, many years later, like Wicked or Hamilton, stuff like that. None of that happens without Cats the way that it does. You know, musicals, stage production, Broadway, stuff like that was popular for many years before that. But um, but Cats is the like, oh, this is a mega popular hit. 
Um, also, again, not the first one to do this, but one of the earlier big productions to start popularizing audience um, interaction during the show. As the cats would go out and like sit in people's laps and stuff. It's kind of weird, mm, but I would you know, not want was to popular um, at the time. Uh, also, I think this is it represents an early example in the 80s of media that hating on the media became pop culture in and of itself. Because while Cats was wildly popular, it was also wildly hated among a lot of people, which, you know, mm, I would say very divisive makes it more influential, you know, um, like. Uh, uh, hating on cats became a running joke that could be used for much of the eighties because you know, a lot of, well, a lot of people like a lot of people are like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life. I may be falling in that camp. <laughs> um, you know, and, uh, they'll say mo- maybe most notoriously he, uh, culminating in that movie that came out in James Corden remake. Oh God. Uh, Taylor Swift and Judy Dench and uh, what a nightmare. I didn't watch it. No, neither did I. But and the trailer I had was no enough. intention of watching. Trailer it. was enough. Anyway, yeah, cats. That's that's my number ten. Maybe, maybe not missing a lot there. Uh, and I'm just rapid gonna fire. Go. rapid fire through these uh, movies. I have Raiders of the Lost Ark, Back to the Future, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Ghostbusters, The Breakfast Club, and Friday the Thirteenth as all pretty notable movies. Um, we mentioned fan of the opera already for stage stuff. Uh, the other TV, notable TV show I'd mentioned was cheers, uh, books. We have, uh, it as being pretty influential that came out in the eighties and also Salman Rushdie's the satanic verses, I would argue quite influential for the time. Sure. Um, and then to round out with music, I've got straight out of Compton back in black purple rain, uh, the Devo song whip it as a real early new wave, uh, song. And then uh, more recent resurgence, uh, Running Up That Hill. Hmm. You definitely have some that I did not have, but I have some that I'm sure you did not have as well. So we... That's uh, uh, that's what I got. Your turn. That's all you got for your honorable mentions? Yep. Perfect. Yep, like we said, my number eight was Die Hard as well. My number nine is a, a book, The Color Purple. Sure. I think as far as books go this was one of the another redefining genre for for black people and and this book had critical acclaim wildly popular i I think it also became required reading in some states uh for high schoolers the book was a big deal or the book the movie was a big deal also the movie was also a big deal oprah was in that which leads me to my number 10 oprah winfrey show now, this one, originally on our conversation, as I had a heavy focus in future influence, Oprah Winfrey Show was number one. And it was number one because of the lasting impact that Oprah has had and all of the things, that the cascade of dominoes that have resulted from Oprah becoming popular on this show, redefining the genre of the show. And from there, her influence just kind of skyrockets. And we talked about even more specifically how she may have even played a role in the 2008 election of President Obama. And I, I, there's, there's documentation on that. So we won't get into it, but largely the Oprah Winfrey show, it cannot be denied how big this, this show actually was. Um, beyond that, she redefined media. She redefined the way that books are sold. 
the publishing industry in general, print journalism changed, and yeah, I it all started really with her show, which contended even early on with the uh, the likes of um fil- like uh, other talk shows that were popular at the time. Um, so yep, Oprah, huge huge deal. Um, more specifically on my honorable mentions, I've got a number of these, and they're kind of all mixed together. Purple Rain is up there. I also had It. I also had Pac-Man. Master of Puppets was on there. Sure. License to Ill, which kind of redefined the white boy rap rock genre. Kind of a weird one. Uh, Pink Floyd's The Wall. Uh, Blind Chance. This is a one of the very first butterfly effect type movies. All other butterfly effect type movies stem from this movie which is one that I admittedly have not seen. But based on what I read about it, it was kind of a huge deal at the time for media. Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones, Raiders. Uh, I had Friday the 13th. I also had Nightmare on Elm Street. A couple of kind of odd ones. Robin Williams, An Evening with Robin Williams. He had a very specific comedy show that, uh, or a one-night comedy that was super popular that people had the VHS of, uh, I believe, including my father, and would watch uh, repeatedly. Jerry Seinfeld also had a couple of comedy specials that were super popular at the time. Potentially one of the biggest comedians of the 80s. Uh, The TV show Jeopardy was launched and became very popular, is still very popular to this day. Well, maybe not very popular. Still has a fan base to this day and is still running. Although without Alex Trebek, I think it's... uh, not quite as good. Uh, Tetris, uh, Legend of Zelda, Calvin and Hobbes. Oh, I already had that. Sorry. That was it was originally on my honorable mentions before, but anyway. Neuromancer, which was one of the first yep. uh, cyberpunk type, or not cyberpunk. Um, yeah, sorry, cyberpunk, definitely. Okay, yeah, cyberpunk. Ne- ne- it, Neuromancer is like foundational cyberpunk. Exactly. Okay, yeah. So I, for some reason, I had some words mixed up in my brain. Neuromancer, the book one of the first cyberpunk-esque basis or foundational books and uh, created words that are still used in sci-fi and other movies to this day, uh, I believe, including the word cyberpunk. We, i got to double-check that. But um, Handmaid's Tale was up there. Hitchhiker's Guide was up there. Red Dragon, which was the first Hannibal Lecter. Ender's Game. Um, Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time, which gained notable increase during that time frame and uh, became insanely popular, especially among academics. And then finally, and this was kind of an obscure one, I couldn't find a way to include it in my top 10, but I really wanted to. And that's mixtapes. Mixtapes in general, like the concept of them, taking a, a little cassette, timing it right with the radio and recording, and then playing it back or like saving up certain songs and then giving them to people like they were very intimate things but that piece of media was so iconic and emblematic of the 80s it has now become a synonymous thing with a lot of the symbolic pictures of the 80s and when you see tributes to the 80s it's often accompanied by a small cassette sure so that's the last thing i got on my honorable mentions all right, well, we've gotten through all of our lists and honorable mentions and everything. 
All that's left is to argue about what belongs on our unified top 10 list. Now, Scott and I use a shared Google Doc to kind of look over, um, keep track of what's where on the list at any given time. I've moved over our top sevens uh, with removing duplicates, and it looks like we have exactly 10 items to go over here. Is that right? Okay. Um, I've boiled... Uh, I've boiled the, the, our MTV choices down to just MTV, like we talked about. Uh, and now we have, uh, you know, uh, if we deduplicate what was in those top sevens, that leads us with Thriller, Empire Strikes Back, Joshua Tree, Batman, Pac-Man, The Cosby Show, MTV, Back to the Future, Calvin and Hobbes, and Like a Virgin. Um, nope, I've, I've somehow deleted Super Mario Bros. I was going to say, something's missing, because that I've, should be 11 I've, entries. I've I was trying to... Trying to do it here. Okay, good. Copy paste well, we something got... over something else. So we have eleven items. Then something's got to be cut. We'll figure um, that out. And we'll figure that out. Uh, any any immediate thoughts that you think are going to be agreeable? I mean, Thriller is going to rank highly on this list, right? Yep. And Super Mario Brothers. And Super Mario Brothers. Those are those are our two. And MTV. Yeah. We'll we'll here. I'm gonna do a thing here where I'm gonna. We're not going to slot them into specific spots just yet, but we're going to. Yeah, um, they're top five. Top five easily. They're, they're, they're going into a top five slot for sure. What was the third one we said? Mario Bros. There we go. Super. Why do you keep forgetting Super Mario? I don't Mario? know how I keep forgetting it. I'm the video game guy. Yeah, who um, are you? I don't know. I've been replaced. Um, okay, so we have those three for sure in the top five. Um, if I'm looking at, I think we can safely say the Cosby show makes it on this list. Yep. I'm going to move that over. I'm not willing to concede that it's top five, but I'm going to move it over. Mm. Mm. Um, I think that covers <laughs> anything that was an actual duplicate. Um, from your list, I also had Pac-Man and Empire Strikes Back in my honorable, your honorable mentions. mentions for sure. Yep. Um, so I think you probably should move those over. Okay. I, I would that. argue that Back to the Future was also in your honorable mention should be moved over. Calvin and Hobbes, you just completely forgot about. I think that should be moved over as well. I don't know that I agree. I love Calvin and Hobbes more than most people. But everyone read the but, newspaper but in, in the 80s. It's, it, Calvin and Hobbes is very influential upon Newspaper comics. Yep. And nothing else. Mm. It hurts me to argue against Calvin and Hobbes. I love it so much. It's so good. But How dare I just don't think you can compare it to the type of influence we see on other things. And part of that is, to Bill Watterson's credit, he actively worked against. He refused to have Calvin and Hobbes be licensed out for merchandise or adaptations or anything like that. But that also limits the influence that it had long term and even within the 80s, right? So then as a show of respect for Bill Watterson's contribution to this specific type of media and to show our appreciation for Calvin and Hobbes in general, I think it should just go as number 10 on the list and leave it there. I think that we, if we're doing that, we need to cut like a virgin. Hmm. Because I think it is easily the least influential of all of the music-related things we have on this list. 
I don't know. I think Like a Virgin's more influential than the Joshua Tree. No way. Absolutely not. Mm. Okay, I'm not prepared to concede that. Let's go back to it. Okay. I, I love Calvin and Hobbes. Don't get me wrong. I think Like a Virgin is more influential within the 80s and beyond than Calvin and Hobbes is. Mm. I think every other item on this list is. We're coming back to it, remember? Let's keep going. Okay. All right. So that takes us to Joshua Tree, Batman, Calvin Hobbes like a virgin. Do we want to maybe... Well, how do we feel about Batman? To be honest, I didn't even consider it for this list. And I, I guess the impact that it had in the 80s, the way you described it, was not something that I was aware of, and it's such a late '80s thing. And when I think about when I think about the '80s and '80s culture and '80s impact and '80s influence, Batman is not what comes to mind. Um, it's not to say that I dislike it or anything. It's just it's just not what comes to mind. Even though it's a 1989 thing, I think what is that? Is that our only 1989 thing on this list? I think it is. Um, yes. It's summer 1989, and it is the premier summer blockbuster of that year. It is the sure. biggest movie of that year, easily. Hmm. And, and, and definitely one of the biggest movies of that decade. Oh, Back to the Future was biggest of its year, but... I, I, we, already put, we already said Back to the Future's mm-hmm. going on. We're not arguing Pat, Batman against Back to the Future yet. No, no, I... Yeah, right. Um, oof. This is a tough one. So we have 11 items total. We just have to cut one. Have to cut one. Unless we want to cut two things and bring up Die Hard instead. That's actually what I was just looking at. Um, Oh, that's Which I don't really know that I'm in favor of. But it is an option. This... Comparing some of these things is incredibly difficult just because they're inherently different medias and they mean sure. different things to different people. And we very concretely have to say we're not arguing quality here. Sure. And quality, also, does not, quality largely does not play into this at all. Also, neither one of us was alive for a significant portion of the 80s to truly appreciate the impact of these. So it's I was alive for, for zero of the 80s. Okay, well, I was alive for three months of the 80s. Uh, yeah, hardly makes me qualified. I missed it by six days. Yeah. Okay, well, to be fair, when I asked my mom about this episode, um, what, what do you think is important from the 80s? She said Back to the Future. So, I, th- I think she was absolutely right. Probably needs more credit as a result, but... I, okay, I, I'll concede Calvin and Hobbes. I'm... It, it's not it's not a good feeling i don't like it i don't like it it's not a good feeling for me either i don't like arguing against calvin and Hobbes, but i just i just don't think it has the impact large scale that this other stuff does no no i you're right maybe in in that case i i did let my own personal view of it sh- overshadow it a little bit but i i really do think it was a very significant thing at the time. But anyway, let's move on. We can, we can make that our honorable mention number 11. All right. Um, 
if we move Calvin Hobbs to definitely an honorary number 11 slot. Because come on. Yes. I love it. Um, we then have 10 things that we have to rank. Yes. Um, <laughs> this is where things get extra tough. Yep. Now, we, now things are getting harder. Um, how do we feel about... I know you... We have a pretty strong discrepancy on Cosby's show here. Yeah. How you do we feel about... Nine? I have it at nine. You have it at I one. I have it at one, yeah. How do we feel about Cosby making the top... Making number four behind what we have in the top three? I'm not saying top three stays in that order. Thriller, MTV, Mario Bros. What if it's behind those as the top three? Yeah, I'm for that. Okay. Our first slot, then, is The Cosby Show at number four. I think Super Mario Brothers should be number two. <laughs> we both had it at number two. So I yeah, think it's I, a just kind of keeping with that, that theme. Um, so then the question becomes, you had Thriller lower ranked than I did. Yeah, I, and, and this is, but this we is had the MTV chicken and egg ranked, comment. We had MTV ranked very similarly. We did. Mm, Part I'm, of why uh, I pushed for Michael, mm. for, for Michael Jackson and Thriller is that Thriller has fundamental... Thriller, as an album, and the music videos contained therein, fundamentally changed what MTV was doing. It's such a symbiotic relationship. It is, for sure. Absolutely. You know what? I'm going to go out on a limb here. What if we move Super Mario to number one, Thriller 2, MTV 3? If that makes you feel more comfortable with having Thriller above MTV, I am okay with that. Yeah, I think that that's the way to go. I, okay. I think Super Mario Brothers, we both had it at two. It, it was number one on my list at one point. I mean, there was a... This might have been the most reordering I've ever done when yeah, making a, a list. Of, I had a lot of shuffling going on in mine as well. And I looked for outside opinions from multiple sources on this and you know you get mixed reviews and things move around and people point things out and you're like oh yeah i didn't even consider that or oh, i wasn't thinking about it from that perspective and yeah it's it really makes this difficult but you know what since mm-hmm. we're the de facto champions and we know the correct order of these things i'm i'm sure whatever we come up with will be in fact the correct order. We are professionals, after all. Well, um, 17 episodes in, how can you not be? Empire Strikes Back should be number five. Uh, hmm. I, so I think my biggest point of comparison to that is Back to the Future. I, I just do not see how possibly you could say that Back to the Future has bigger impact than Empire. In the 80s themselves? In the 80s themselves, even. How many what how many what? Back to the Future toys were there? Uh there were at least a few. Yeah, but how not, many but how many Star cars Wars. did people buy as a result of Star Wars? Uh I'm going to say far less dollar value even with a more expensive thing than Star Wars toys alone. I bet How many time machines were, were featured I bet in there Star was Wars more, episode 5? I bet there was more money sold in Boba Fett action figures alone, a character who's in that movie for like 3 minutes. Than DeLoreans sold as a result of Back to the Future. Yeah, Vader only had like seven minutes of screen time. I mean, maybe that was Vader in four. Iconic. 
uh, makes me think, though. Yeah, you know, the common ground here, there is incest in both these movies. Well, <laughs> if if you count kissing as incest, well, in the way that it was romantically also, also, done, also, also, yes. the, the, the Star Wars kissing was in was in New Hope, not in Empire. Oh, you're right. So, Empire Strikes Back, incest free. Proud, oh. proud, proudly out saying incest free movie. Uh. Uh. Yeah. Okay. Hold on one second. Let me let me look at some of the other ones we have on this list because we're close here. I think we're real close. Yeah, we're really close. I think. I think if we move Joshua Tree to ten, I'm willing to concede Empire Strikes Back at five. I think we should do Joshua Tree at nine, like a virgin at ten. Because oh. those are the two that each other, we both like the least on each other's list at this point. With what Pac Man Seven, Batman Eight. Yeah. Hmm. All right, move them around. Let me let me look at it. Okay, I'm gonna move because I know I'm not gonna I'm not gonna win the fight to push Joshua Tree super high. Um, because of because of your uh, prejudice against you two. No, not you two, Bono. Um. But uh, they are largely synonymous. He's the lead singer, and uh, they all write the music, though. I didn't know that. Back to Future at six, yeah. Um, Pac-Man, Bono, seven. Bono, and the Edge do uh, first pass usually, and then mm. uh, Adam Clayton and Larry Mullen Jr. Um, they bring the tracks to them and go, "What do you guys think?" And they go, "This is good," or "Hey, you need to fucking change all this shit." No, I'm good with this list. I think this is solid. I I can feel good about this. All right. Run it down. What do we got? I'm going to run it down. We have, going from 10 to 1, Madonna's Like a Virgin from 1984, U2's The Joshua Tree from 1987, uh, Tim Burton's Batman from 1989, uh, Toru Iwatani's Pac-Man from 1980, uh, Robert Zemeckis's Back to the Future from 1985. Uh, I had George Lucas written down. He is the creator. It's, uh, Irvin Kirshner is the director of Empire, actually, though. Uh, in 1980, Empire Strikes Back at number five. Both notable. Uh, the Cosby Show, as created by Bill Cosby and others. Uh, in uh, What year's Bill Cosby Show? 84. 84. 84. Uh, MTV as created by, I'm really not sure. I didn't write that down. I wrote down some of the VJs, but they didn't create the show. They created the, the network. They just created that one show or star. It was a number. It was a number of people. And it's MTV from a number of people in 1981. And number three, number two is Michael Jackson's thriller from 1982. And at number one, the most, uh, culturally influential piece of media from the 1980s. Shigeru Miyamoto's Super Mario Bros. Maybe you've heard of it. 1985. That's you know, look, looking that's at this. Ni- 1985 was a very good year for media. Super yeah. So Mario what, Bros. Back to the Future. Calvin. Back Hobbs. to the Future. Calvin Hobbs. Yep. Yeah. It's a it's a good year. I think uh, Phil Collins released In the Air Tonight in 1985. It's a good song. Uh, Cindy Lauper. If uh if you you should you owe yourself going watching the video of 
in the air tonight that is um a deer falling down a slide mm. just google it it's very good are you trying to end this on a low note i feel like you're trying to end this on oh a the low deer's note. fine this isn't episode five all right the, the, deer, the deer's fine it's just like a uh it's like a kid slide but and you did it. say honorable mention calvin and Hobbes, right yeah sorry number honorary number 11 calvin and Hobbes, because we number love it. T- number 12 likely die hard yep okay well you know what i can be agreeable to this list i i think it's it's largely a good compilation of both of what we had and i think it's no surprise that there were so many duplicates for us so yeah i think i think it's out of our hands right it's more about the cultural impact i think there our biggest omission is any representation of new wave um, mm. but like we just R-E-M. couldn't, just couldn't fit it in. Mm. Next time we'll have to have another episode on that. Talking heads. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Speaking of next time. Yeah. So, Hey everyone, thanks for taking the time to listen to us argue. If that's what we did, we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Did you enjoy this, Josh? Yeah, I had a good time. Nobody cares. All right. Our next episode will be posted two weeks from now. And Josh, tell the people what they want to hear about our next topic. Well, our next topic is going to be the best songs titled with a name. Now, to be clear, we're talking about a person's name is included in the title of the song. So an example of a song that I've decided already is not going to make my list, maybe an honorable mention type thing, like A Jesse's Girl by Rick Springfield. Janie's got a gun. Sure. Also not going to make my list because that song's not very good. Um, but not an Aerosmith fan. Uh, Dream On's very good. Steven Tyler's mouth too big. He's a weird dude. He's a weird dude. He's a strange man. Okay, well, that'll be fun. I'm looking forward to that. I already got a couple of ideas, and one in particular that I'm sure will be a repeat offender for that episode. We will talk again very soon. But until next time, I've been Scott. And I've been Josh. And remember, with a little practice, you can argue your way into a friendship. Take care, folks. Scott, I have like 40 fucking songs oh, okay. well, written down for this list. I have number I have one, many- Hey There, Delilah. Uh, no, but it is Hey There Delilah will feature on my bon- bonus side list. Oh, good. That I am working on. It Songs is that you hate? No, Taylor Delilah's fine. Oh, okay. Not great, but it's fine. Inoffensive. It was such it's... a gimmicky song of that era. Oh, for sure. The, uh, uh, this, this, get, this side list has proven harder than I thought it was going to be. I oh. am like, uh, let's say like 86% done with it. Hmm. That's an odd percentage. Uh huh. Considering it usually is about ten things. You got eight point. It's a it's an am, it's an ambitious thing. Oh shit. That I'm doing. That oh is kind God. of stupid. What are I'm you have doing? To cheat a little bit. I, oh. I kind of want to keep it a secret. Um. You're not doing one out. for every letter of the alphabet, are you? Yeah, you figured it out. That's oh, what I'm doing. Okay. okay. If you listen to any, you listen. I I say anyway. The Josh. Nope, that's my last name. Uh, the Josh opinion here <laughs> is 
We're going to take that again. Oh, man. Go ahead.